Welcome to Wealth Well Done. Together, we'll cover a wide range of important topics surrounding money and the impact it has on our lives. From the sophisticated and highly valuable planning techniques of the ultra-wealthy to the commonly underutilized biblical teachings. Together, we'll work to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well. Here's your host, Eric Scoville. And welcome to the 29th episode of the Wealth Well Done podcast, where we lean into the tactical, practical, and spiritual advice to help you do your wealth well done. Uh, these are the strategies that the ultra wealthy use to uh, to manage their money. This is the the daily applications to your uh, your life and your family's life, and then the wisdom found in the real authority on money, which is the Bible. So last week we had Joe Van Boris from Generational Equity on. Uh, he was talking about uh, selling your business and the whole mergers and acquisition world, as well as some exit strategies for um, for entrepreneurs who are getting ready to sell their business. Um, we are actually going to, so we recorded two episodes with Joe, but we're actually going to break into that flow a little bit here because um, we have a development that we want to share with everyone. So uh, we're going to come in with these two episodes here, and then we'll come back to finish up the second episode with Joe here uh, in three weeks, actually. This week, we are adding a couple twists to the show. So first of all, we have three guests. So a uh, big shout out to Kyle and Walker, our team for figuring out how to create a second studio to uh, manage all four of us here. And second, um, we're going to take some time to actually show, talk about a deal that we're getting ready to invest in. And so we've had, you know, the, the purpose of the show is primarily to help help people master money rather than having money money master people, which I'd argue is the case for most Americans. Um, but we all, we often have people ask about the idea of like, how do I get involved with some of these different deals or investments that, that we're doing? Um, and so normally people don't find out about them until it's too late, until we've already raised the money for that and the investment is now closed. And so what we wanted to do this time is um, help people understand a little bit of what we're doing and why, whether that's because you might want to actually invest or if that's um, simply because you want to learn how we are deciding what type of investments we're doing and the due diligence that goes into the um, into the investment before we would ever you know decide to engage in a project. So um, over the next couple next couple of weeks, we are going to mix in plenty of um, education around real estate with the experts that we have here on this panel, if you will. Uh, we're also going to give you an inside peek into the uh, luxurious development we are doing down uh, on an island off the coast of Belize. So now we'll introduce our guest. Today, we are back again with Joe Van Boris. Last week, we got started on the idea of, of M&A, mer mergers and acquisitions, especially coming from the standpoint of I'm an entrepreneur looking to sell my business. Um, Joe is with Generational Equity. They are by far and away the leader in this space on this kind of mid-market and, and lower mid-market of um, entrepreneurs, which we've kind of said is up to that, really up to that $250 million range where they really specialize Um we spent all or a bunch of time in the beginning trying to or establishing his credibility. So today we are going to jump right into it. Um, so Joe, thank you for being back on here again. Uh, where we where we left off last week, uh, or I guess where I want to pick up, and we're joking right before we started this. Joe asked if he should change his shirt. Um, so last week was actually about five minutes ago for for our purposes, but we're going to use last week the terminology for those who are listening in. Um, so one of the things, Joe, that we talked about before was one buyer is no buyer. And so can you walk us through the idea of I'm trying to sell my business, but someone came and knocked on my door and said they wanted to, they wanted to, wanted to buy it, whether it's an employee of mine or 
a competitor or even a professional buyer who found me and said, Hey, I want to, we want to look at buying your business. And we've got one buyer. What, well, let's just go into that saga. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of your listeners that own a business today, they, they've, they've got a decent business right now. They've probably had multiple people call them on the phone or knock on the door, send an email or a fax. So there's a lot of people out there that are digging for deals. A lot of them are not the business owner. They're a marketing company. So you just got to be careful with what you get there. They're looking for a warm body. But you come in, somebody knocks on the door and says, hey, I want to buy your business. Is this a good buyer? Typically, what they're trying to do is source that deal themselves and come in to buy you cheap. So I would say no. And then if you're only dealing with one buyer, you don't get the market um, pressures to push the, the deal up. If I start with 500 potential buyers, I have 100 uh, offering memorandum requested. I'm dealing with 15 to 20 good buyers. You know, in our business, we never tell the um, buyer where they are. We don't say you're the number one bidder. We don't say here's the price that my client wants. We say, you know what? Um, The market out there is is higher in their price than you are right now, make us another offer, okay? So that pressure pushes the the price up. If you just have one buyer, you have no leverage. And no leverage is going to keep you down about 50% of the value. So pricing is, is that that's obvious, right? And we all know that from you trying to sell a house and you want to get to that multiple offer situation where you go back and, and not where you're doing an unethical thing, but you say, hey, so-and-so, you know, offer me this, can you beat it? And you call back and forth there. But but just where we say multiple offer situation, everyone submit your best and highest. But from the from the standpoint of time, so these deals take a lot of time for the, the buyer to go through the process and decide if this is a, a good investment that they want to make. Um, what what is typical that you would see if someone is knows that they're the only buyer coming in? They they've come and knocked on the door, they're a professional buyer and they've got credentials that say that they've got the assets to do this, what are you likely to see there? Yeah, they're going to stretch the time out because they want to go into due diligence and they want to nitpick everything because a buyer will use the due diligence process to decrease the price. It, we want leverage. So leverage all starts with, are you in a buyer's market or are you in a uh, seller's market? We, we are in buyer's markets more than we are in seller's market but we've been in the longest seller's market that has ever been in history for the last eight years. So leverage is on the side of the sellers and you got to know that. But if a buyer comes into the process and thinks, well, I can just pick you up cheap and they're the only buyer, they're in charge. You gave them leverage. You've got to know where we are in the timing. Get out when you're in a seller's market. That is the number one thing. And it's the biggest mistake that I see business owners make when they do this. They're getting out when they think, I'm ready to retire. Okay, that's important. That's 50%. The other 50% is the timing of the M&A marketplace. Get out when buyers are buying. If, if they're not buying, if we wait, let's say, to 2025, when we're projecting an economic uh, downturn, 
right? And we're predicting with interest rates going up, a lot of competition with private equity. So there's not going to be as many, as many dollars. You know, what are you going to end up with? You're going to end up with a lot lower price because they now have the leverage in the deal and you don't. As we go down, we've got to pay attention. So you you see people draw out this due diligence process that they're able to de-risk themselves because they get to watch you perform over the next, it might not be 90 days, it might be nine months or more. And and the longer that they kind of pull you into that circle, the more control they have. Yeah. So, all right. So, so from that standpoint, we, we, we established on the last, last week's podcast that, that you, you guys have, was it 34,000, um, 34,000, 34,000 qualified buyer, qualified buyers, professional so, buyers. Yeah. I have other databases with hundreds of thousands, but I don't know if they're qualified. Okay. Sure. Sure. So, so that's a, that's a huge deal here. That's where you guys, how you find out that you've got 500 people who are, who are, you know, a good fit for this and you get a hundred people, you know, want an offer memorandum. Okay. So, so from that standpoint, it's very important that we, that we get people in to, to bid on this. When we get into the, we were talking about the, the market that we're in here. Let's talk just a little bit about that. The seller's market versus buyer's market. Um, and what do you, what do you predict like the shift looks like? Is that, is it just a prolonged period of higher interest rates? Cause you know, we talked last Last time about the, the these private equity firms are still sitting on a lot of this dry powder, this this money that needs to get deployed, and so if they raise capital in twenty twenty one, they still they still sitting on a, a surplus of money that needs to get deployed here over the next few years. And we you know you established that basically on an international scale, there's about five over five trillion dollars of of dry powder. You know, capital needs to get deployed, otherwise it has to get given back to the investors. But there's going to be less money going into these private equity funds. Over the next five years, like likely as it sits right now, the, the capital raising yeah. environment has changed dramatically. This seems like a great time still to get in and or to to be selling the business. But what happens as as the time goes on here? Like what what would cause a a shift or what what is an investor or a seller of a business also trying to pay attention to? Yeah, so we want to look at the economy because the mergers and action, mergers and acquisition wave. Um, is in lockstep with our economy about 89% of the time. Okay. So as the economy goes down, a lot of times M&A goes down. It's not going to mirror it moving forward as, as blatantly just because of this $5.1 trillion in dry powder. That's going to keep the market strong for a while, but the prices are going to drop off. Okay. Right now, we're, we've ticked up values every year for eight years, including this year. Right now, year over year, our portfolio uh, compared to a year ago, um, we're up 7% in valuations from a year ago. That's good news if you're a seller. It means we're still on the up trajectory. But things yep. are going to happen. Interest rates, inflation, taxes, you know, all of these things are going to come into play that are going to be forces as to what the valuation will be in a negative fashion, and you have no control over any of them. Okay, Okay. so interest rates and inflation, we're seeing it. It should be eroding the value, but because of this this amount of capital out there on the sidelines, it really hasn't affected it yet. But we go into a recession in 6 to 12 months, like most of the economists are predicting, 
um, you know, prices are going to go down pretty fast. Yeah. And and the window probably is maybe another 18 months left in this marketplace before okay. we're going to see something. And the big question mark, of course, is going to be the elections, where we are, who's in control, where we're, where we're at. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Thank you. Um, switching gears now, if I'm a seller, what does a seller need to do before they engage in a sale? Like, what is that? Let's just speak about from from a generational equity standpoint. Let's say we have hired you to come in and handle handle everything regarding the sale of our business. So what, what does a seller need to do? So there's a lot, um, typically, because most people have never sold a business before and they don't know what to do. So my first day on the job in private equity, my boss walked me around and he introduced me to everybody and about halfway he said, this, Joe, this is the one thing you can never forget. And I said, oh, yeah, what's that? And he jumped up close to my ear and he screamed as loud as he could. And he said, sellers are liars. <laughs> After six and a half years as a buyer, I agree. Okay. Yeah. Sellers are liars. So what do we have to do? We have to put the company in a position with a proof source. We can't just tell people blue sky. We can't say, oh, yeah, here's half the story. We do great. Well, tell me the rest of it. You right. got to tell them all the facts. So our pre-due diligence, it takes us eight to 14 months typically to sell a client in this process. And our pre-due diligence is 30 days to measure the company, compare it, quantitative, qualitative. And then we set up what we call a roadmap to enhancing value. How do we increase or engineer the value of the company over the next three or four months by positioning the company properly in the eyes of that buyer? all those due diligence questions that they're going to ask, we've got to have a strong, supportive answer or they're not going to give us the value we want. How much of that falls on the hands or on the shoulders of the entrepreneur versus generational equity then? So we want data. We want to know the facts. Give us the data. Give us, it's usually about 10 hours of pre-work we get from our clients we're going to spend 60 to 90 days. We're going to do an evaluation on the business. So it's a comparative analysis, quantitative, qualitative, other people like you in the industry on 35 to 45 data points. Where do you compare? Are you below average? Are you average? Are you above average? Are you good? Are you great? And we're going to go through there and we're going to look at this comparison and then the roadmap to enhance value. We're going to give some ways to track and understand your progress, right? So we're going to come in and we're going to say, we're going to give you a letter grade for each one of those data points. If you're below average, and let's say it was the ratio of your debt to equity, and you're below average of the industry, and we've got to get that up. You're a C minus. We give you the score. And we say, we want you to be a B plus, And we want you to get there in the next four or five months, if possible. OK, if we get to that B plus, we're going to give a GPA, an overall score that says, here's where you really are. You were here three months ago. You've increased the value of your business. We have these KPIs, key performance indicators, it baked into it. So, you know, I do this. Did it increase the value or decrease the value? OK, so they have the ability hit. to track oh, moving forward. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, well, I was just going to say because I know how 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 you guys work that 
and obviously as, as a business, we know that if we set goals, it's amazing how many of those goals we actually accomplish. And as you know, if someone engages with generational equity to have them help sell their business, you might they might be ready for the sale now or not, and you guys can help them get there. And isn't it incredible when you see that we put all these you know, these measurements under a microscope and you start seeing the improvements in these things that a buyer is looking for. So let's shift gears here a little bit. What are buyers looking for? Buyers want a good company that has diversification compared to what they already do. So if I'm a fastener supplier in Dallas and I've got a pretty good grasp of the market and I, and I just do 27 different nuts and bolts, but I want to grow and I want to show the buyer that I can grow. And I can say, one of the things that I can do is bring in other type of fasteners that we can sell, but I don't have the capital to do that. Mr. Buyer and the strategic growth plan, we think you should do this. Okay. So if I'm doing those fasteners and I'm a company that's a distributor of 10,000 different fasteners, but I don't distribute the 27 that you have as a seller, you have now created a diversified uh, horizontal integration for me. I just add what you have to what I already sell to the people that I sell it to. I now have a new supply of that. And to me, as the buyer, that has just increased the value of my business, and it's also made it safer. So I'm going to say that's the number one thing. They want that diversification or they want that geographic footprint expansion. I was regional, but now I'm national. Okay. okay. And that takes down risk as well. How, how many of the, like, how big of a problem does it present when the owner is, you know, a substantial portion of the operations behind there. You know, there's a substantial portion of the sales, there's a substantial portion of the execution of the business. How big a problem does that represent? And, and what, yeah. what, what do, how, how serious do sellers need to take that? We got to take this. This is incredibly important, right? It's called owner dependence. So if I have a company and the owner works 30 hours a week, and I have another company and the owner works 80 hours a week. Which one's more valuable? 30. 30 hours a week because they've set up systems and procedures, because they have redundancies, because they have other people, departments that can take over more of the work. If the control freak, and I'm going to say this with a lot of love because that's me, <laughs> my five businesses, I'm a control freak, right? I need to make sure that I'm got my fingers on everything. But if I don't relinquish the uh, responsibilities to other people in my organization, the value of my company has gone down. So one of two things are going to happen. Either we begin the process eight to 14 months and we start to transition some of the administrative tasks or the hats that the buyer has to other people in the company. Or the the um, seller then sell, sign some kind of a uh, employment agreement or consulting agreement to stay on because it, the knowledge is in their brain. Right. And we got to get access to the giant brain and we got to be able to get that. Now they get paid, 
but it's a longer exit. So if you say, you know, I want to get out of here in two years and retire. Well, it takes eight to 14 months to sell. And then I got to stay on for two years. You've got to change your horizon. Okay. Sure. Because that is a big, big point. Nobody's going to want your business if they don't get you. If, they, if you're the dependent um, uh, owner of the company and we sell and you want to get away in three months, the value of the company is going to go way down. And, and so that, that gets us, we can go here next, uh, talking about the different types of, of sales and or, or payments here. You're likely, if that's the case, you're likely to get a uh, less favorable form of sales. So can you talk about just a little bit of the, the different types of payouts that, that someone gets, you know, if we get the yeah. lump sum and as we get into the others here. So, you know, what we want to do is time it. If I get out in a seller's market where buyers are buying, I've got leverage on my side. I've got more control over what I, I get paid and how. And it's also depending on risk moving forward. So the least risky way for you to get paid is 100% cash at close. Okay. Mm-hmm. In this leverage seller's market that we have right now, I'm getting probably 30% of our transactions that fall in that category. Now, okay. some may have an owner's note. Some may have an earnout where I'm going to get paid on the performance of the company over the next couple of years, which might be a good way to get paid. I might actually earn more money because I'm on an up trajectory, and that might be a good way to do it. But we want to be careful of the, the legal things in the definitive purchase agreement that I'm going to call clawbacks. We don't do this and it has a negative effect. And now I've held out money and they're going to keep it or they're going to make me pay them back money. So if I'm in a buyer's market, I'm subjectable to the whims of that agreement. If I'm in a leveraged seller's market, I'm the one in control of writing that document. I don't pay for it. I don't get it. The buyer's law firm will do that. But I'm in control because I have, you know, I started with 500 potential buyers. Sure. I've got the, the the negotiating power now to dictate some of the terms. Okay. I'm, you know, it's not a, a perfect thing. We're not going to get everything that we want. Uh, okay. So we want to switch, switch gears here a little bit and um, go into this whole idea of of the uh, sales price versus take home. What, what a seller actually gets to keep of the of the price and so it's not all about sales price and so will you talk a little bit from a tax strategy standpoint and also help us understand what what that even means from a tangible asset and intangible asset yeah so uh i was at dinner a couple weeks ago and some of my ex-partners had invited me out and they brought somebody that i didn't know and that person introduced himself and he asked me what I did. And I told him investment banking and mergers and acquisition. And he said to me, he goes, oh, oh, yeah, I, I've got an offer. And I said, <laughs> I don't care. And, and he was like, what do you mean you don't care? And I kind of looked at him cold and I said, you got an offer? Th- that doesn't impress me in any way. I don't care. And I kind of looked away. So he said, I thought this was going to be a friendly dinner. And I said, yes, the friendliest thing I can do is to teach you a little bit about what you said. And the fact that that is not what what you want to look at. It's not the offer. It's the terms. Hmm. What are the terms? So if I offered somebody $100 million and told them I'd pay them with cash, is that a good deal? Well, in my fine print, it says I'm going to pay that cash 
$500 a month for nine lifetimes for me to pay it off. <laughs> I've got to understand the terms and conditions and the reps and warranties. And then it, it doesn't really matter there. You can't stop. You've got to go to the bottom line, which is how much do I get to keep after taxes? Right. right. So where are we today from a tax standpoint? You sell your business. You want to get capital gains tax, which is 20 percent plus one point nine percent for Obamacare. If you look at what the Democrats, the White House just came out with their budget, they want to increase capital gains tax to ordinary income rates and increase that to 90, uh, 39.6 plus an increase in Obamacare to five percent surcharge. All right. Depending on what state blood pressure just just skyrocketed. Right. So back to the timing. When do you get out? I want to get out when the buyer's buying and taxes are low. Where are we with taxes? Are they going to change next year in election year? Probably not. We're safe until the 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 next election until 2025. Can they come in in 2025 and um, and pass a new tax, say, in March and then retroact? that to the first of the year? Yes, they can. And yes, they have. So that's the fear that you got to look at. How much am I going to get? One of the things that the financial planning world, so Eric does a wonderful job of this, to sit down with his clients, go through the financial modeling, look at what it is, do some what-if planning so that they know how much am I getting? How do I make a decision until I get to the bottom line? What do I get to put in my pocket? And then once I have that, how do I want to live the rest of my life and how do I have to invest it? it they're all connected here. They, you've got to put your plan together in a complete format. And the financial planning world with Eric involved in that, you got to have them involved. You got to have them involved early in this process so that you know where the tax consequences are. Yeah, I, I appreciate you just saying that. And summarizing you know to, to look at it this way so you have you have the the sale price and then behind that you have what what the terms are and so terms might be how you get paid um the timing of when you get paid you know is this a lump sum up front or is this an earnout over a certain number of years you then beyond that you also have the money goes to this so if we've got that 100 million dollar sale how much goes toward your tangible assets tangible assets are going to be something that that a buyer wants to see more money go toward the tangible assets and a seller wants to see less of that. Reason being, a buyer can then depreciate out those tangible assets that they buy, but the seller has to pay ordinary income tax on that. And if we have these intangible assets, that's what the seller wants. The seller gets yeah. to count those as capital gains. And so that's where that's where you know this whole piece of you need the expertise to come in. And so, so you've got that. So we've got this this initial piece of this is is what are the tax rates because you don't just get taxed it for the $100 million that we talked about here. You get taxed at different rates for different components of the sale. And then right. beyond that, we have what are those tax rates and what do we need? And would I rather get a, a deal executed at $80 million that I'm going to be able to get pushed through here now, you know, while I have a little bit more confidence in, in what the, you know, I know what the tax rates are today versus yep. trying to hold out to get it to $120 million here, um, you know, four years from now. Which, like we talked about, valuations are likely to uh, take a hit, but tax rates are, there's a good chance they go up. You know, the thing is, about eight weeks ago, we we dug into um, taxes where we're at historically from a you know a tax rate, and we're it, it's unfortunate because we're taxes are still high, and this isn't you know b- biblically speaking, we are 
we are not where we should be from a tax standpoint, but we, it is no. what it is right now. And historically for the country, we're, we're at a very low tax rate. And so um, to the other point, some pieces of this is maximizing value. Some pieces yeah. of this is maximizing what you get to keep. And some piece of this is what, what does this impact to your overall financial plan? What, you know, just because I could, you know, increase the valuation of my business by X percentage doesn't necessarily mean that, that it's worth that to me to hang on for this many more years to, um, to keep that level of uncertainty in play. Um, so all those other components come into this. So I appreciate you, you bringing that yeah. up because that, that's an often overlooked piece of this. Um, so one of the questions that I ask my clients is I ask them, I say, look, there's, there's different kinds of worth. What kind of worth are you? And I like this because somebody asked me this about 15 years ago. What kind of worth are you? And and the guy said, you know, it's either net worth or self-worth. Which one? And I'm yeah. like, I guess I'm a part piece of both. You know, but really when you get down to it, what is it that really matters? Is it your time? Is it time with your family? How much do you really need? What is security? You know, I mean, you can get into the philosophy of what it is. And then what am I going to do with it? I can't take it with me when I go. So where am I going to put it? Am I going to do some tax planning with a charitable remainder or charitable uni trust? Am I going to look at other ways and other places to give money? If I have more money than I'll spend in my lifetime, what do I do with it? Where am I going to go? It's it's a thought looking forward having your dollars continue to work for you, but then it's ultimately, what is it that's important to me? And yeah. to me, it's my, it's my self-worth. And I, it took me a lot of years before I finally realized, stop chasing the dollar. The dollar doesn't matter. What matters to me at 61 is my time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mentioned that I was at this family office conference, uh, yesterday and the, for all of the wealth that was represented there, I didn't hear the word God mentioned once. And and so you, we obviously know the Bible warns all about this, that how hard it is for the wealthy to to inherit the kingdom of God. And and yeah, and so there's all this, all of this effort that goes into, once I've accumulated this, and a lot of people in that room have had an exit or multiple exits, and now how do I preserve this for generations to come? And that's not necessarily what we're supposed to be doing it's how do we steward this well which may mean preserving this in a you know in a a good man you know leaves inheritance to his children's children but but there's also like those aren't your assets and that's that's something that very few people actually or or worse and you've you've dealt with this i know in your practice you know the the dollars go down to the kids only to get them hooked on drugs and turn out to be a terrible person you know, I've met a lot of really wealthy people and the wealth does not make them happy. It doesn't. It's not. It doesn't. It's, happiness makes them happy. You know, a relationship with God makes you happy. It's not going to be where I've accumulated my scorecard and that's what's going to make me happy. You know, you're just Scrooge and you just have a lot of money, but no friends. Yeah, and I feel I mean, sorry for people. <laughs> if if you could have measured the room there, and I don't mean this because uh, there were there were joyful people in the room too, but there was a lot of people just when you you know trying to kind of look at their souls there and and assess and you know not being judgmental, but just trying to assess where they're at and and there was tremendous wealth there, but there was also yeah. a lot of people who they, they seem a lot closer to Scrooge than 
than what they yeah. thought they would have been when they you know were in that spot of man if i just had more money than than blank and so right. it, it's really not there um okay a cu- couple of things before we uh before we wrap up with you joe and i truly like i said i truly appreciate your your insight here um how do i know if my cpa is up to par when i go to, to go to do a sale they're not. <laughs> so I'll make this simple. <laughs> you want information from your CPA. They are tax experts. It's what they do. You want them involved in this process, part of the team, but don't think that they should be, or your corporate lawyer should be the MA representative. Okay. Yeah, they're this not is, quarterback. They can't be. Yeah. Th- this is um, you know, it's it's the Toms, Tom Brady, uh, Tom Hanks, Tom Petty. They have agents. They're specialized agents. They don't negotiate their own contract. They have investment people and they have accountants, they have lawyers and they have, a, but when they negotiate their content, you want the specialist. Okay. So on your team, you want to have your accountant, probably the wealth planner, because they have a better understanding of, of the bigger picture should be your quarterback. That's my opinion. I've been a wealth planner in my career as well. Uh, but I like them in that position because they're not in there with their ego. They're in there to really facilitate uh, a transaction to get done. They're not deal killers. They're deal makers. And that's what you want. So I want an M&A attorney specialist to come in later. But don't bring in your divorce lawyer. Don't bring in your corporate lawyer. Don't bring in you know, the DWI guy. Just because they say they know how to do it, they don't. Um, it's it's like going to your dentist and saying, hey, I've got this brain tumor. Will you take it out? You're a doctor. <laughs> Could he do it? Maybe. Should he do it? I don't think so. Get people on your team that are specialists in each of the different nuances. That's that's the that's the key. Really, yeah. you, I have people tell me all the time, well, I can do this myself. I'm smart. Fantastic. Have at it. Um, they're going to spend a lot more money. It's going to be um, uh, frustrating. And you now have two full-time jobs. So, you know, we don't hire have to the talk. people that know what they're doing. Yeah, we, we don't have to actually go over your fees here right now because I think I encourage someone to actually have a conversation with you. But I will just say to a listener who's contemplating this, um, I know their fees and the fees, they make sense at every level here that there's there's no there's no amount of sale that it doesn't make sense to, to bring generational equity. And I, I was honestly, I, I'd expect them to be higher. Um, and I, but I think you guys bring tremendous value. You're likely to increase the, the, uh, the take home value that a, that a seller is going to get on this considerably. And you, your, your fees are absolutely, there's no one that could say that they're out of line. So um, last thing here um, with this, so let's talk about, life after the sale, you know, for, for, uh, especially for an owner who's, um, who's going to be asked to stay on board. Can you just talk a little bit about what that's like for an owner to prepare them for this? Cause you know, they think, Hey, I'm going to get the sale. We're going to go through closing. I'm going to be out and life will be happily ever after. Obviously we, we've already established money. It is not equal happiness. So there's, there's a lot more to that. Um, but let's talk a little bit about a, uh, how often are our owners expected to stay on and then B I'm going to, uh, so answer A, and then I'll come back to B on, on the next life okay. question. So I, I'm going to say that in every case, um, it lowers the risk to the potential buyers. Okay, It's called a neat and orderly transition, and you want that to happen. That's important. It's good for you. It's good for them. It's good for your employees. So defined in the agreement is your role. 
is the time that you're going to put in. Are you going to be an employee for six months or a year because you've got to teach somebody else to do your job? Um, have we already established that it's not owner dependent and now we can transition out sooner? Typically, then we'll go to anywhere from a um, two to maybe a five-year consulting agreement. Something happens, you need to buy it at a certain place, you need to you know, schmooze one of the clients, you need to intercede with an employee, something like that. But you define I, five hours a month, 15 hours a month, whatever it is, and then get handsomely compensated for it. So, yeah, we want to make sure that it's defined. And then let's say that the exit is in there and you don't like the buyer because we didn't do enough due diligence on the buyer to know that they're jerks. We're going to exercise our exit clause that has been pre-negotiated. Okay. Okay. So they have that right and you have that right. Okay. All right. Um, last one then to for someone who does sell. Uh, th- this was a conversation yesterday on, on the panel. You had um, you had a number of people who had sold their business recently for large amounts of money, and they were talking about life after the sale. And, and, all, and then there's there's identity issues. You know, this is this is this business has been in my family for blank generations. This uh, or this is all I've known. This is what people know me as. My name is on the business, and so. Could you just, just talk a little bit about some of the people who you I'm sure you keep in contact with most of the people you've after the sale. But uh, and, and by the way, Joe, you said that you guys had eight closings on, on Friday this last week. So you guys do a lot of volume. But well, yeah. some of the people right. who you have seen, um, who you guys have seen go through this, how does someone do it well post post sale? How, do, how does someone make that transition well? It's, it, it, if you don't know what you want to do when you're not working, okay, or you want to sell the business in order to start another business, you need to have a well-formed idea in your brain as to what is important to you. If you don't have that in our organization, my team will not take you on as a client. Hmm. If you have identity issues where you identify to the company, you're going to get out I'm going to spend $100,000 representing that client. I'm going to put in, you know, 18 months and I'm going to find out on the two yard line that that client would not let go of their baby. Okay. So to me, these are qualification questions that myself and my team would have to do before we even agree to take somebody on and we are picky. I got to make sure it's the right person because I don't want somebody to get out there and be wishy-washy. Okay, so think about it. What do I want to do? There are people that I've had that wanted to get out to be professional fishermen. They went out, they were sponsored, they did saltwater fishing. They went a year, 223 nights on the water, called me a year after the sale and said, Joe, I never want to step foot on a boat again. I shouldn't have sold my business. Help me buy another one. Okay. We don't know what we don't know. That's part of this process. So going through this with our clients as a guide and advisor, our job is to ask those probing questions, is to get you to think about and to to talk about. And then we will give suggestions. I mean, we've done 1,500 transactions. We'll tell you what our clients have done. We'll tell you how they've thought about it and what 
how they got to the point where they made that decision that, yeah, I'm ready to go. If you're not ready to go, I don't want to take you on as a client. That's a tough one to do. Okay. And, and, and yeah, life is not necessarily, it's a different set of challenges that you go through there. You might not have the financial burdens that an entrepreneur has because there are many, um, but but it's 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 absolutely a different different type of challenge here, and often it's a more serious challenge um, post sale. So, a very it emotional is. one at that point. Um, Re- rely on your team. Rely yeah. on your team. They'll help. What I have seen is that if someone does not have their identity in Jesus, it gets it gets dark and ugly post sale. Yeah, you know, so. alcoholism, uh, drugs. You see all yeah. kinds of things. Divorces. You know, just because they have money and the freedom, if they don't have God in their life, they're lost. Right, right. Same, same even if, without the sale of business. But right. all right, Joe, how, how does someone get a hold of you? Um, they can call me. Uh, my phone number is 214-766-4542. Or you can go on generationalequity.com, uh, our website. And you can sign up to come to a free eight-hour conference and learn. I mean, we just scratched the surface today, but we'll come in and we'll dig deep and we'll teach you. No obligation. Come, understand what's going on. Uh, just because you come to the conference doesn't mean you're going to be a client or, or get pressure. Come, understand, learn what's going on. That's the best way to do this. Yeah, I'll put a plug in for that. I, I came to one of the conferences. They're, they're all over the country, so it doesn't have, you don't have to go far to find one. Um, you know, close to you. I went because I have I have 17 clients that are looking to sell their business. Now, there are only a couple that that seem like they're a good fit for generational equity because you, you guys are picky and, and it takes the right type of client, um, the right type of business for you guys to want to work with. Um, but that conference was, it was great for me. And I've got a lot of, you know, I'm going to say a lot with quotations behind that, but I've got experience here. And it, that conference was so great for me. So I would absolutely plug that that someone goes to that conference it's not pressure you just you pour a lot of information at someone an entrepreneur is going to learn a lot coming out of that especially you know the earlier you are in your business the better because you can just start building your business to be right for a buyer that way you right. don't get to 65 or 69 and then just you know hey i'm looking to sell that's right. at that point you've, you've cornered yourself yeah don't wait to the last minute yeah. just plan ahead this is all about planning all right Joe Van Boris, Generational Equity, truly appreciate the uh, wisdom and insight that you have brought to this. Um, thank you for what you're doing for, for my clients. Thank you for what you're you're doing for the, the world and the, the heart of what you do. And I appreciate it. Thanks, Sarah. All right. Thanks, listeners. We'll, we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you again for listening to Wealth Well Done. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. And together, we'll continue to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well.